Professors FM. Doug, as you know, we have joined the Professors FM podcast network. So it's extremely exciting. It's like for the first time in my life, I'm going to have academic friends. This is big. And as part of this, we're going to talk about some of the other shows on the network. One of the things we talk a lot about in terms of sports analytics is the role of incentives, right? It's all about incentives. And so one of the other shows on the network is called Taxes for the Masses, brought to you by Lisa DeSimone from the University of Texas and Bridget Stomberg from Indiana University. And so what these two ladies do is they dive into all things taxes. I think it's a great compliment to what we do. In some ways, there's nothing bigger in public policy than taxes in terms of shaping the economy and society because taxes change how people behave. So, you know, give it a listen. Great show. Analytics with Mike Lewis, the podcast where we talk about everything you need to know about sports analytics. Here's your host, Mike Lewis, marketing professor at Emory University. Hey, welcome everyone. This is Mike Lewis and Doug Battle with the Fanalytics podcast, uh, brought to you by the Emory Marketing Analytics Center. Um, well, Doug, uh, we, we're, we're what, about a week of sports back on the TV. That's right. Um, what, you know, as we get into this, uh, initial thoughts, what are you thinking about uh, our return to sports? Yeah, well, there's so much to talk about this week, and much of that is is off the field or off the court. But when we're talking about what's going on with the return to sports, um, you know, and those who have listened to the show know I've been enjoying the, the NBA's return. Some of the big storylines there have actually done or had to do with more of the social issues. Um, and there's been plenty of discussion about who's standing and who's not for the national anthem. But as far as basketball is concerned, been some great games. Uh, Lakers Clippers was one that stood out to me. Um, and then the Raptors slid in and, and beat the Lakers with pretty much no superstars on that Raptors squad. So NBA, that's all going on. We had, uh, let's see, Yankees, Red Sox in baseball last night. No new positives for the Marlins, but there's been plenty of new positives across the league. Yeah, the, the Cardinals, as of Monday morning, seem to have... There are rumors that more positives are coming out. Yeah, and Rob Manfred has threatened to shut down the entire MLB like a week into the season if, if uh, teams don't take precautions more seriously as, as far as that goes. So that's that's definitely a, something to keep an eye on as sports move forward. Well, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I, I think... Um, uh, you know, we, we, we kind of play roles on the, the podcast. I play more of the dispassionate analyst and you're playing the role of the the fan for the at least for the most part and, and especially yeah. for today you know i i feel like a lot of this is kind of on the brink at the at the moment i'll give you a couple of my observations and you can react to it um in terms of baseball i think it looks weird i, did, yeah. I, I think you know in in terms of the basketball product where they can mostly shoot the court and you can see the, the I mean, there's this some weird aspects, right? The players, some of the players wearing masks on the bench where the bench is spread out, yeah. you know, they're, they're banging bodies, you know, 20 feet in front of the, the bunch, the bench. But in terms of baseball, every time I see a pitch, 
you know, pitcher facing a batter and there's no one in the stands, I, I find it, I mean, I suppose I'll get used to it, but I, I still find it kind of jarring um, thinking about it through the lens of the fan. Yeah, I'm not used to it at all with baseball. It's weird. The flat <laughs> cardboard cutout fans that make up like probably 10% of, of a stadium for a team like the Braves is odd looking. I feel like with basketball as a whole, I've I've gotten where I forget that it's a different scenario. They've got um, different ways. Well, part, of, part of me, th- sorry, part of me thinks it's because of the way the, the games are shot. Yeah. Right? In, in in terms of basketball, you know, the actions on the on the court, and you know, usually you're only going to see the first couple rows of fans for most camera shots. But in terms of baseball, every time the ball moves, you get a different view of that that stadium being that stadium being empty. Yeah, and I think also with noise with basketball there's already um, for those that follow the nba there's already an element of artificial noise with the kind of music that plays while teams are taking it up the court and uh pa announcer leading chants and things like that and they've kept all of that they they've gotten really creative with those video screens to pump in an atmosphere that would be more like what would be showing on a jumbotron at an arena and so they're able to capture the feel of the game a little bit better and then at the end of the day basketball is such a sport we've talked about this before where these guys played aau and empty gyms growing up where it's able to adapt to a fanless environment pretty well as a sport inherently Um, whereas baseball for whatever reason just just doesn't feel right and obviously the mlb is also having issues with even you know, potentially having to shut down the whole league. So um, there's there continues to be continues to be a juxtaposition between those two leagues. I think that I think that's fair. That, that the products are fundamentally different. Where basketball is, you know, basketball arenas are are always going to feel smaller, right? They're they're inside. They tend to be smaller stadiums, not a lot smaller than a lot of current ballparks. And again, you know, I always want to be careful, but um, you know, as the person thinking about the nature of fandom you know basketball is kind of a high intensity show like a high intensity mm-hmm. tv show there's more you know there's light shows the music's i mean there's music at both places but the music seems a little louder to me mm-hmm. since it's indoors where baseball that kind of let's go outside enjoy the nice weather and you know for whatever reason the lack of the baseball crowd seems to be impacting the product more for for myself I do wonder, in addition, it's like, you know, how does this, you know, if baseball is a game that's really built for going to the park and basketball is a game that is really built for TV, you know, what are the long-term consequences for fandom? I'll add one more thought to this as well. Basketball, and while no one's going to feel fortunate for how things played out, basketball the state at which they're resuming play where, what were they playing, eight games before the playoffs? Yeah, they're playing eight. You know, that that feels much more consequential than everyone starting out zero and zero and starting an abbreviated season. Yep. Uh, so it, you know, there's, it, it feels like basketball is rapidly moving towards the excitement of the, the playoffs and the championship. And again, how these this is viewed as a championship, is it viewed as legitimate time, a question for, for time. But in the, in the case of baseball, I don't know. It feels like uh, feels like exhibition season for a lot of reasons. Yeah, well, with basketball, the stakes are incredibly high already. Almost every game I've watched um, ha- has been 
between two teams fighting for seeding or fighting to make the playoffs in the first place. I know there's like Portland and uh, Memphis Grizzlies, for example, played the other day in Memphis and San Antonio, and they're all fighting for that eight seed. Um, And so there's certainly already a playoff feel as far as the intensity of the games, the level of basketball that's being played, um, and and the amount of effort that the players are putting in. So it, it feels more significant than a typical regular season. You're right. And uh, as far as baseball is concerned, one thing you said that kind of pops out to me is when you're talking about the cameras, you think about baseball, um, every time a ball's hit, especially a home run or a foul ball, you know, the camera is forced to pan to show the empty seats in the crowd. And and every time it does that, it reminds the viewer that there's something illegitimate or there's something just Something off like about this, um, whereas basketball, they're, they're able to keep the focus on the things that are normal, uh, which is the, which is you know the play and and the intensity of the game. And the the other thing, and I, I don't think I, I've just been casually looking at the numbers this morning. TV TV ratings are in general. I don't like to talk about TV ratings, which may sound strange uh, given the focus on fan analytics, mm-hmm. because you know, I've never had a great source of TV ratings data. You know, what I would like to do ideally with ratings data is control for a lot of things, time of day, t- part of the season. But I can tell you that, and this is rough, I'm going from memory here, that the first NBA game I think had a, basically drew about 4 million, maybe 4.1 million viewers. The first MLB game drew, I think, four and a half, four mm-hmm. and a half million. Mm-hmm. And but, you know, it, it these things are kind of special events. Right. I mean, you know, we had uh, Dr. Fauci throwing out the first ball for essentially the start of the Attem- major attempting league to throw attempting. To throw. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> um, but the the more recent ratings, it looks like the NBA is holding it is holding their ground a little bit better where the drop off to, you know, a, a weekend and the NBA is drawing a, a million and a half or two, two million fans. Now, of course, a lot of a lot of what the NBA emphasizes is, hey, the Lakers are playing yet again. Uh, <laughs> whereas Major League Baseball has, you know, there have been several games that have hit ratings of less than less than a million viewers. Now, this is an interesting number when you put it in perspective, right? There's, uh, let you know, making the, about three hundred and thirty million people in the USA and who've been starved from sports. The NBA and MLB come back, and just above one percent of the population tunes in to watch these events. Um, in the in the case of another popular entertainment category, the the movie industry, uh, there's always a lot of interest in the the drop off. You know, so mm-hmm. what do you get the opening weekend versus mm-hmm. what do you get the the second weekend? Mm-hmm. I think one of the Star Wars, one of the recent Star Wars movies had a historic drop-off maybe return of the jedi or, or something with the, the last one i believe return of the it, jedi was like 1983 or something so probably a, well <laughs> rise of skywalker which, might be what you're thinking <laughs> what's the newest one where they're uh, i mean essentially they're all kind of remakes of the first series right uh that argument that's can, a little unfair that, yeah, that <laughs> argument has been made um the, <laughs> the most recent is the rise of skywalker okay yeah so uh, but but the the point really, besides my cultural illiteracy for recent <laughs> cinema, is you know the the drop off is a real signal, right? There's there can be a ton of hype going into something, 
and it, and if it looks like the major league has baseball has a, a drop off of you know from four and a half million to let's say one and a half or one point two million on average, that does not bode well versus the NBA maybe hanging in there to a fifty percent drop from opening day. Yeah. Yeah, and of course, baseball started out. I'm looking, and the that first game between the Yankees and Nationals had the highest regular season number of viewers since 2011, um, which is pretty wild. So, the, yeah, the anticipation is built for that. But also, for those that watched that game, it was delayed and then rained out. And uh, everything after that was COVID outbreak. And the games have been – they're just – not as fun. I don't. I I went into this baseball season being like, all right, I'm gonna watch all the games. Like I'm gonna get into this, and then like a couple games in, I'm like, I don't know if I <laughs> if I can do that. And I think that's what those numbers reflect for uh, some some of the more casual fans. Of course, the intense true fans of some of these teams are, are gonna follow all the games no matter what. Well, that you know that that's the other dilemma for baseball in this kind of strange season, right? Where baseball has always been known for having more local emphasis right the you're a fan of you're right you know, if you grow up in chicago you're probably a fan of the cubs maybe a fan of the Sox. in atlanta you're a fan of the braves but that that's your primary fandom whereas in the nfl people are fans of frankly the the nfl as witnessed by fantasy football in the case of the nba fandom seems to be concentrated and focused on specific players mm-hmm. and so it is very easy for the NBA to it's very easy for them to roll out their stars and kind of marquee matchups where it's 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 more difficult for baseball to actually do that. Um, you know, there is what what is the obviously you want to put LeBron versus Giannis to draw massive ratings. If you're talking about the case of baseball, I don't know that you can put two players, you know, throw out a couple of names out there that gets the same effect. Yeah, I think right now you just got to put the Astros against somebody that that was uh, not a beneficiary of of their (laughs) cheating, and that makes for an interesting storyline. You just want to watch someone peg those guys. That's kind of interesting. I mean, to me, that was one of, uh, I think, one of the big stories going into the original Major League Baseball season. Are you still... uh, are you still feeling the antipathy for the Astros? Yeah, it's there among fans. Okay. Um, but it's not it's just not the same as it would have been in stadiums. They would be getting booed off the field every single game. So there there's now, certainly still still the same level of hate for them though. Now let me tell you here here's the other side of the optimism of sports coming back, the fun of watching the NBA games. How big of a deal do you think this uh Pac twelve I don't know. I don't know what you want to call it at this point. This movement of Pac-12 football players to essentially negotiate terms of return with the the Pac-10. Yeah, this strikes me as a major, major story for college football. Uh, and I've been on record over the years that you know there, there used to be a very kind of healthy debate about uh, should the payers be should the players be paid mm-hmm. or not. As it, as it with a lot of sports debates, it's almost like the one side of that argument doesn't show up anymore. Mm-hmm. And, and it's almost like it's generational, right? Mike Dicka still wants to fight about uh, folks kneeling for the national anthem. But for the most part, in terms of the, the talking head class, no one is taking no one is taking the 
uh, I don't know, they'll call it the traditional side mm-hmm. of this argument. So uh, the players get a, a scholarship. So now in, in the Pac-10, they are asking for, and one of the things Pac- that's really Pac-12. interesting in terms of what they're asking for is 2% of the revenues now push to various social justice or social justice movements. I, and I don't know what that's the right word for it, but we'll call yeah. it that for now. Yeah, sure. We know we know what you're trying to say there. Yeah, it's like they have a players union all of a sudden, which is different for college sports. And they're threatening to opt out of playing this entire season if the conference doesn't meet their demands. So to me, it's like these players are starting to realize their power. It's almost like seeing how much has been discussed, how much money will be lost if there's not a season this year because of COVID. And players as a whole are starting to realize, well, that same amount of money is going to be lost if we if we decide not to play. Um, and so they're starting to understand their leverage and, and their negotiating power. And it'll be interesting to see. I expect quite a bit of pushback here, but they're putting you know the league in a in a tough well, situation. Hold on, hold on. Where do you think the pushback is going to come from? What what pushback are you talking about? Pushback against the player demands or pushing? Or the players pushing back on the status quo? Um, well, yeah, I mean, I think there's certainly going to be both. But what I was uh, referencing was pushback on the demands simply because uh, I think for the NCAA, for these conferences, they view it as a slippery slope in that once <laughs> once we start listening, you know, once we start negotiating with, yeah. with college athletes, Next thing you know, we're going to have to actually pay them as if they're earning us money, which seems, which is what they've they've been trying to avoid this entire time. Well, well, how about this point? It is a slippery slope, but we're already we're already moving down that slope. Yeah, and in fact, are we accelerating? Right, we we've had the you know the image and likeness decision, and the NCAA kind of caved pretty quickly on that one. I mean, you know, the two or three legislative acts, and suddenly. You know the the writing was on the wall, and the NCAA moved. Where we we talk some about some of these players making decisions to go to the G League rather than to play college. I could almost imagine that we are rapidly going to evolve to a very new college sports system. What that system looks like, I have you know couldn't tell you, no idea. Yeah, I th- I mean I I think it's overdue. Um, but we'll, we'll see. As a Georgia fan, I would love for it to happen simply because I won't have that anxiety every year of, oh, no, what if our best player is getting paid and it's going to ruin our whole season right when things start going perfectly <laughs> like it did my freshman year when Todd Gurley uh, was suspended. Uh, okay, I, I think that's fair. Take the uh, open it up so that there's no longer any um, there's no longer any mystery. There's no longer any concerns. Johnny Manziel can go sign autographs. Yeah, exactly. Um, anything can anything can happen. I, you know, I mean, it, I think as part of this, and you know, part of the story, and when the social justice issues come into play, that that's quickly followed by some idea that uh, the NCAA athletes are being exploited. Mm-hmm. And I think when that becomes something that is an accepted part of the argument uh, of the story, then it's very hard. Almost as soon as you accept that vocabulary, it's very difficult to not move towards Mm -hmm. turning this into some form of professional sports. And of course, once you make that move, then I don't know how this whole system remains uh, sustainable. And, you know, this was 
sort of going on, uh, you know, and it, not that we have to solve this problem today, but I, it's interesting to me watching everything play out in terms of COVID being the thing that has changed the world and opened up potentially all sorts of different structures and different approaches to to sports. And I think that's going to continue through the fall. Yeah, I mean, we've seen that with everything, not just sports, but COVID's kind of been the, the little flicker of a flame that's started a fire as far as um, even companies that are resistant to having employees work remote now have <laughs> have embraced that and have been forced to and it's it's set a precedent for for those employees to continue working in that way and it's no different with with college football it is really interesting to me because i think players are starting to understand their power i think the social justice aspect of things puts the league and potentially the ncaa in a very very tough situation um, that's tough to navigate and really, you know, is advantageous to the players. And I think they know that. I think they're being smart as far as how they're approaching this. So whoever, I don't know how this whole thing was organized. The the players union of sorts. I know that's not what they're calling it, but it essentially seems it to feels be, like it. Yeah, though. it feels like it. Um, but it, that's going to be an interesting one to keep up with. Another thing that happened in college football this last week was the the schedule announcements for the ACC and SEC. Um, ACC wanting to do the 10 conference games plus one in-state out-of-conference rival, and the SEC saying, nope, just 10 conference games for us, and we're going to start two weeks later. So a couple rivalries affected by this. Uh, Rivalries are really an important part of stories uh, in in terms of sports stories. Uh, You know, it's something that, I think people will often dismiss or fail to act on, though there's nothing better if your team has one. You know, I I went to the University of Illinois. Who is the University of Illinois' rival in football? The end zone. You know, it's it's just kind of it's kind of sad. It's almost like there's this forced rivalry where they create a trophy and Illinois plays Northwestern because of the two schools in the state of Illinois for that for that trophy at the end of the year does that feel like Ohio State and Michigan Mm -hmm. well you know hell no so let me ask you this question Doug who is the University of Georgia's rival hot take Florida um, but traditionally it's Georgia Tech that's that's what people think Okay, and I think, and so with the Georgia Tech game being canceled, and look, I, everything seems premature until they, they actually play games this I'm year. I'm still skeptical as well. Um, um, I think I saw 95 years those two schools have played in a row. Mm-hmm. I believe that's correct. Um, it's along those lines. It's 90 plus. Yeah. Florida, Florida State canceled, or at least yeah. canceled for Clemson, now. Clemson, South Carolina. <laughs> So, you know, what is the how big of a hole is that in in a in a team's in a team's schedule? How much of that how much of the fans' joy is diminished by losing those games? Now, I mean in the case of Georgia Georgia Tech, it's it's almost a little bit different, right? Mm-hmm. Because well, who who was going to win that game this year? Georgia, yeah. Right? Who's probably going to win that game next year, right? I mean, it's you know, when I think about rivalries, and you know, this will be something a little bit out of the blue. 
you know, rivalries have got to be competitive. And that is something that actually, I think, prevents some schools from playing it. Like, and so like, I'm totally changing the subject here. I think one of the biggest mistakes that was made in the state of Illinois in regards to basketball was Illinois and DePaul never got together to create an out-of-conference matchup. In that case, the logic was always, well, we don't want to dignify the other program as a legitimate rival so that, you know, with the fear being that maybe recruits are going to go to the other to the other school. And I'm sure there's more history of a state school versus a school that played in the city Catholic college kind of league. But the the lack of that rivalry, I think, is is really killer versus, you know, Indiana crossing the border to play Kentucky um, you know, Duke versus North Carolina, you know, these, ri- everyone on Notre Dame's football schedule, right? The, these rivalries are really critical to, and when I'm, when I'm teaching this stuff, you know, I talk a lot about sort of loving your own team, but I'll also segue into talking about the importance of having someone else to hate and someone else to hate on an annual level is an important part of being a fan. No doubt. And when I think about even Georgia, Georgia Tech, I know that's a different rivalry. I don't think it's a great rivalry. Um, I think Albert. Well, but just sorry, to, just to interrupt you. But as a Georgia fan, what do they actually even call that? Isn't it something about hate? Yeah, clean old fashioned hate. Clean old fashioned. Yeah, but to me, I've always viewed Georgia Tech as in their fans as viewing that game. Okay, okay, hold on, slow down, dude, slow down. <laughs> I, I just the way you set that up, I can hardly wait till what's next. I have always viewed Georgia Tech. And their fans, right, and so yeah, <laughs> proceed. Yeah, as a as a group that that <laughs> views the Georgia game as their Super Bowl, and what I mean by that is that the rest of their games, because they're typically unlikely to be a college football playoff contender, um, and and they usually learn that fairly early in the season, and there comes a point where the season still matters because the last game is the Georgia game and they, every game is like a practice game to get ready for the Georgia game and the Georgia game's the Super Bowl, and they talk about it constantly and get all hyped up for it and usually get smacked. Um, but without that game, it's like all those other games, all those, all those practice games, they're not even practicing for anything. Okay, well, hold on. Let me now explain to you how the Georgia Tech fans feel about Georgia and their <laughs> fans. Yeah, <laughs> right. And, and, and I don't even have to be there. It's like, you know, it's uh, the the arrogance <laughs> of all the Georgia fans driving through Atlanta in their red F, you know, their red Ford pickups with their their stupid Georgia G on the on the tailgate who think they are sort of that they own the city and they are, um, you know, God's gift to the football universe, even though they always lose to Alabama. And there's nothing more satisfying than uh, beating down on the Bulldogs. Yeah. I mean, I, I do think that's <laughs> how they view it. And so that one out of every 10 years when we're having a down year, they get to enjoy that. Um, and, and they talk about it for the next 10 years. Yeah, it's beautiful, right? <laughs> and, and so in, in some ways, you think about the you know fandom being based on narratives, and you know you get you know a dominant team and a rivalry, and, and I don't know what the historical thing is. I, I'm guessing that Florida, that uh, sorry, Georgia probably has won two thirds of those games. Uh, maybe in recent years, maybe it's more like seventy five percent. But it is, um, it, it's kind of great for a for a team that may not. 
be competing for conference championships and national championships, they do have something else to look forward to and something else to to remember. And it's like so if they beat a if they beat a ten and O Georgia team, guess what? You know, that goes into Georgia Tech lore mm-hmm. and myth. They could and it's they could be winless. Sustains the program. They could be winless and it defines their season. But I think as a Georgia fan Growing up in Alabama, the team that I hated like I was supposed to hate Georgia Tech was Auburn because sometimes we lose to them when it matters. And and what I mean by that is in seasons where it's not already a wash. And uh, I used to watch with my dad every single Auburn game leading up to the Georgia game, pulling against Auburn and scouting them out and hating them and feeling disgusted every time they scored a touchdown or every time they'd win at the end of the game and just being like, man, I can't wait for my shot at them. So I completely understand that. And I feel like if that were taken away this season, um, of course, they, all the games may be taken away. But if just that one game were taken away, it would kind of take away from the overall experience. And I think it would be even more so for, for the fandoms that have those really, really big rivalries that define their season. Yeah, and I mean, you know, and it's probably also fair to say that this season doesn't really count in terms of fandom, right? I mean, which is sort of a blessing and a, and a curse for all of these leagues. Is this a season that is, oh, that was the pandemic year, so let's not worry too much about it. So it's sort of a... It's just, it's an opportunity to do something, um, but I doubt that you know I doubt that teams are really gonna fans are really gonna hold against their team of not being not being particularly successful. It's just this gonna boil down to this this weirdness. Now, like like I said, and it's all, everything sort of comes full circle here. I don't know if this feels like a legit NBA champion. I don't know if it feels like a legit Major League Baseball champion. I don't know if the college is. Um, you know, whatever championships are, or even assuming, you know, cause I, I think one of the things that we do have to talk about here is even the nature of bubbles in terms of are these seasons going to come off, come across, but you know, is the eventual NCAA football championship, is this an asterisk kind of season? Well, um, so going back to that, this, um, so the basketball bubble seems to be holding yep. the baseball bubble seems to be teetering. If you are now moving towards a football season, and again, this is not really our area of expertise, either of us, but just in terms of fandom, what do you think the college football programs need to do? Well, there's been a notion that if there are no students on campus, there's no way to have college football Um because it will show that these student athletes are different than regular students. Like, yes, we all know that they're different than regular students, so we can just get over that. My opinion has been from the start that the best case scenario, you look at a school like Georgia, which is down the road from me, um, you think these players are better off being surrounded by 30,000 college kids all moving in in the next two weeks to you know a, a couple miles of campus um, or or having a sort of campus bubble for the athletes and the school continues to do school online. I think online school is crucial, and I don't see that happening at a lot of these football schools. I think that's going to be incredibly detrimental um, as far as the spread of COVID and how teams and players are affected by that. Um, 
you know, as far as that, I think these conference bubbles make sense to an extent. Um, but yeah, it's, I wouldn't want to be the one making decisions right now. It's, it's a catch 22. Well, and one of the things that's not being said, right, is when, when things have happened with the Marlins or the Cardinals, at least I'm not aware of it, they're catching active cases, but they're not catching, they're not revealing the number of folks with symptoms. Mm. So, you know, seeing data, and again, you know, it's like there's so much data and there's so many studies out there, but data that suggests that, you know, maybe upwards of 70% or maybe even more folks under 60 do not experience any symptoms. Uh, but, you know, how, how does this, how do these things play out? If you got an active roster and a college football team of, let's say, 100 kids and you have a couple of positives, can you play that, can you play that next game or does everything, uh, does everything end immediately? Uh, yeah, I don't know, and 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 I my my fear is that everything ends immediately, mm-hmm. and so you're going to have this kind of very rapid cascade that you know folks just they're just not going to play. Yeah, I'm I'm concerned about that as well. I think as far as the decision makers um, and the decisions they have to make, I think they've got to look at large numbers with COVID because on an individual level, the individual risk for any college athlete is not that great does not seem that great but as a whole and there have been studies or i guess um not studies but some people have run the numbers and projected that if all these college football teams play and given how frequently people this age contract the virus and how they respond to it that they're in a season there would be a number of even you know, projected deaths among the college players. So this was a, I think you're referencing a study by an Illinois uh, university of Illinois computer scientist Uh that put some number out there that 60 to 70% of all the athletes would become infected. And again, symptomatic or asymptomatic. And I think he had a range of three to seven deaths on top of it. Yeah. And that's players and not even taking into consideration coaches who are more at risk as a whole because of their age and um, the state of their bodies relative to these players who are in the best of shape and probably the least likely to to be affected by this virus. And so I think it's it's a tough position because you have that. And on the flip side, obviously, there's the financial side for these schools, um, for these athletic departments that may lose other sports because of this, because of college football. There's also local economies. A lot of these college towns rely and all the businesses around rely on football season. And it's going to be devastating for, for a lot of people in a lot of places if there's not a season. Um, it's a tough situation. Again, I wouldn't want to be the one making decisions. We'll see. I feel like the pushback start dates is really them delaying and, and hoping for something to change. Yeah. Well, I mean, we've look, we've seen this. Um you know, my kid was supposed to have her first day of high school today. They pushed that back to the 17th, and I, I don't know if they pushed that back again. It was also supposed to, supposed to be live, and they've pushed everything back to online. Mm-hmm. Um, I know some college systems are still planning on doing some live classes. The University of Georgia system in particular, where where we're at, where, where I'm a faculty, Emory, uh, and again, you know, take it for what it's worth you know in terms of 
getting some of the details wrong. I think they're planning on having about a third of the traditional dorm capacity, so a low density, mm-hmm. a low density campus. Our on our programs in the undergraduate business program are going to be online. It sounds like they're going to do some hybrid, which means some live face to face classes with the the MBAs. But I think you know if that if that is the starting point, it seems like you know it's one of these things where it seems like the there's only one direction for this stuff to go, right? And that once, and it's, it's inevitable, right? Once some infections and once some of these things start to happen, what's going to be the reaction? And I guess that's really the challenging thing for the folks making these decisions is not just what the program's going to be, but what are the contingencies? And, you know, should you put the contingency, contingencies out there at the beginning? Yeah, absolutely. And I think they will. Um, again, I just, I think that for a lot of these people, they're thinking about what happens if one college athlete, one unpaid player dies in my conference. And I, and is that blood on my hands for, because I wanted our conference to profit financially. I think that's a really challenge. It'll be challenging to have a season with that kind of being such a factor. Yeah. And it's interesting because I think that will be the argument. And so in in a lot of these things, it is just the way the story is framed, the way the narrative is put out there. Um, you know, the idea that the player is put in danger based on financial considerations versus, you know, the other side of this. And I, I think this is actually probably more realistic, mm-hmm. more common. Let's say that people just want to get back to normal. Mm-hmm. You know, most kids want to most kids want to play. You know, it, it's it's a risky environment. I don't know how much, you know, it's hard to say how much riskier the environment actually is is it feels right there's definitely this tone of fear that's out there across the whole well across the whole world probably um how much it you know the how much incremental risk there actually is in this trade-off between a return to normalcy and getting back to right because you know i mean like people made this argument about the schools right it's not free right if you turn off the physical schools there's some additional costs mm-hmm. That may just end up being invisible. Uh, kids suffering from depression, kids not getting mm-hmm. their their meals, mm-hmm. um, versus the costs that are public. And I think that's something that we, as a society and our media in particular, struggles in terms of uh, dealing with and reporting. Yeah. And going back to your question before, you asked me what I thought schools should do or what I thought leagues should do. One thing, if they're going to play football. Um, that I, I absolutely would do from an optics standpoint is I would not give players the option to opt out. I would give players the option to opt in because from, and again, as someone that f- follows sports and, and follows some of these guys on social media, it's clear that there's a large number of them that feel like they're going to be hurt if they don't get to play this season, that their futures are hurt, that their careers are hurt. Um, then they want to play. They want to take on that risk. And I think, if it's if if you change the story and change the narrative to the NCAA is endangering these young African Americans to make profit off of them, uh, because that that's a bad look, especially when something happens. And again, that's why to me that's why I think it's not going to happen. But it's like if you're going to play, you gotta you gotta give these guys the opportunity and, and not force anybody in anything or even pressure them, but rather you know put them in a position where they're making the choice 
to play. They're taking on the risk, essentially a waiver, <laughs> and um, and I guess clearing your name a little bit if you're the NCAA. But again, it's a tough, tough situation. Okay, Doug, I'm, uh, I'll sort of leave it to you here. Um, anything else you want to throw out there this morning? Um, you know, I, I've come to embrace. I know you were eager to get back to sports, and maybe we'll really get back to sports. Though somehow I feel like the universe is going to keep dragging us back to <laughs> pandemic and social issues, and yeah. and and probably it's just going to heat up as we get closer to the the real political season mm-hmm. here. But yep. anything else, or do you want um, okay. to next week? A couple things real quick. I'll just fly through these. The NHL quietly is back in two bubbles, both in Canada. That's something that probably would have been the main topic like earlier in the summer, but now we had one player kneel though, so it even fo- it's even followed the NHL north of the border. Yeah, yeah so no comment. And uh, and so that's going on. The NFL, we've got two quarterbacks with COVID on the. They have like a COVID IR list, um, and it's Matthew Stafford, Gardner Minshew. There have been a number of players opt out of the NFL. Um, and nine New England Patriots, which has raised the conspiracy theory that the Patriots are having their players do that so that they can get Tanking. Trevor Lawrence. <laughs> Tanking, Bill Belichick tank. Nice. Yeah, for Trevor Lawrence. So, um, again, you know, with the NFL, the number of, of really, like, prominent players that have been backing out, and I know even Drew Brees has discussed it, um, which may be a conversation for another day, but we could end up with um, – watching our second team units play some NFL football this, this fall. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the things that uh, is uh, definitely a conversation to have, though it's a tough one because it involves analytics without a lot of data, is the consequences of some of these decisions. You know, what is the impact on player performance of sitting out a year? Um, this actually, you know, sort of came up a little bit, right? Um it's sort of the other side of the coin, the the issue of usage restrictions, where uh, Zion had a still has a strict minute limit even after not playing for five months. Um, but it does it, it raises an issue that is difficult in terms of the world of analytics and making predictions and decisions about players in terms of well, what are the consequences for sitting out? Are they positive for some people? The body rests up. Is it always a, a negative? Um, it'll be a fascinating thing to, to watch in terms of what happens to the, the group of people that do decide to uh, opt out. Yeah, I've already had those thoughts cross my mind with uh, Jonathan Isaac for the Orlando Magic, who famously stood for the national anthem last week, uh, tore his ACL this weekend in a game. And there was part of me wondering, you know, would that have happened if there hadn't been this break from basketball? Like, was that an element that affected it? Or, or is this just something that, you know, just a fluke thing that maybe would have happened, maybe wouldn't have? It, it's not affected by the break. I don't know. I don't understand how all that works. But um, you're right. Some players are affected. Some aren't. Well, and let me let me add on to this because I don't know if I've said this publicly before. The, the issue with these kind of performance data is related to layoffs or injuries. They're, they're, it's just a very difficult problem because you tend not to have enough data. Mm-hmm. And so because you don't have, you're not privy to the severity of, in, of injuries in the most cases and sort of the detailed health data, it's hard to do anything meaningful, right? I mean, you could sort of go through and look at past injury reports and get a sense of that. Um, but... It's not going to be 
Uh, it's just going to be inherently limited. In, in the case of these kind of layoffs, you know, you always think, you know, it's almost like you think about the classic cases of athletes that are, you know, end up taking some time off because something happens, right? Either a major injury or in the rare cases of, you know, an athlete goes to prison perhaps and comes back out. Mm-hmm. The performance always seems to, always seems to drop off. So it's, um, it's a fascinating question, but maybe one that's, um, even though we're awash in data these days, sort of a final frontier in terms of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this week I'll be curious to see what unfolds with the PAC 12 players union. Uh, we should be getting schedules for ACC and SEC as far as matchups are concerned, regardless of whether those actually happen. Keep an eye on these NFL players opting out, and we're moving closer to the NBA playoffs, and the MLB season is continuing as well as the NHL season. So sports are back. Sports Center is showing sports again. Things aren't totally normal, but it's about as good as we're going to get in 2020, it feels like. Let's just hope it continues. So until next week, talk to you guys.